Welcome to this episode of the Wagging Tales podcast. On this episode, we've got John McGuigan, Glasgow dog trainer and behaviour consultant. We're going to be talking about the shock collar ban, which has just been announced to be happening in England next year, as well as other aversive tools that have been used in dog training. John has been training dogs professionally for over 15 years, and having trained thousands of dogs within that time, he and his team have committed themselves to continuing their own education, as well as those that they work with, so that they're able to have the most up-to-date dog-friendly techniques available. John also does coaching for other dog trainers and educates to a higher level, which has him travelling globally, representing in Australia, Canada, the USA, throughout Europe, as well as within the UK and many more. So John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. More than welcome. So John, I gave a brief introduction there, but I'd like to know a little bit more about your story before we dive into the the meat of uh, what we're talking about today. Sure. So can you tell us more about how you went from being in the police to becoming such a strong advocate for positive reinforcement? And was there any specific situation which triggered that move? So there's a number of things. My journey's been... Um, so I've, I've come to positive dog training from... A, there's been a number of influences that have, have led me to, the, to there, um, both um, kind of philosophically, my outlook on life, um, and also how I wanted to train and, and treat dogs. Um, I had two Mastiffs. Uh, they were my my first dogs. Um, when I get first got married, uh, my ex-wife had a little dog, and... Um, but she was resident there, you know, so uh, my ex-wife had her before I arrived. And then we got our two Mastiffs, a dog to Bordeaux and a Neapolitan. And I trained them using really, and then I was, uh, the only word I can use to describe it was brutal. It was just, I was just it's not even harsh, I was brutal with them. Because um, that's what I was taught. Um, so choke chains, prong collars, pinning the dog, try to show dominance uh, and all that nonsense. Um, and uh, they, I think I probably shortened my boy dog's life. That was a Bordeaux um, as a result of it. Uh, I'm pretty sure I did uh, health problems uh, to do with the physical toll that heavy corrections took on his body. Um, and that's on a hormonal level and, you know, uh, by um, biochemical and, you know, all that stuff you know, all those levels. So he, he died a heart failure when he was, um, he wasn't seven. Um, and then I started on a, a, they became really reactive towards other dogs and were getting into fights uh, when they were on lead. And uh, I went to a positive trainer um, who start, started me on this path. Um they gave me some stuff to do, really, I mean, super rudimentary um, kind of classical condition. So just building an association between the dog, the presence of another dog and the presence of food. Um, and and it, I mean, super, super, super basic. Um, and I started seeing some changes. My boy dog died, Bosco died just after I started there. Um, and then I started working with that with Kitty, the Neapolitan. And then... Just started reading, you know. Um, so 
reading books. I read uh, The Dog Whisperer by Paul Owens. Um, uh, Owens, uh, Owens. Um, not the Caesar Milan dog whisperer. Okay, so Paul says that he's the original dog whisperer, um, which I would agree, and he actually does as dog whispering that he does, right? You know, so whatever that is, but it's a really gentle approach. Um, I remember speaking to a guy who, um, in uh, Andy was a bit, he was a big rugby player guy, you know, who I was in a, in a police with, um, you know, big rugby guy, you know drank and was a big tough guy and good cop and all that kind of stuff and he'd bought a um, Labrador puppy and he had the dog whisperer Paul Owens book and I asked him at the time what does he say about corrections and he says he makes no mention of it at all and so I was kind of I mean it's just like little seeds that get planted throughout your life Um, he had I was thinking, of, well, if this big, tough man can treat his puppy like that and just completely accept that you don't need to use corrections for your dog, then what excuse do I have for not doing the same? So I, I stopped using physical uh, physical corrections really quickly after I started on a positive journey, and I stopped using verbal corrections maybe just a few months after that. Um, and it was because of influences like uh, Paul Owens and Ian Dunbar and um, Gene Donaldson, uh, Patricia McConnell. So I read their books, started going to seminars, conferences, meeting other trainers, asking them who they learned from. Uh, and, and it basically just snowballed from there. So uh, guys at work would ask me for help with their dog. I would go and see them. Then like my sister's um, friend asked me for help with her dog. And then it was somebody at her work who I didn't know and and on and on. I just kind of started it. At first, I just did it as a hobby. Um, I would do three or four training sessions a month. And then it became um, four or five a month and then six or seven a month and then three or four a week. You know, um, and I was fortunate that my shifts in the police, so I left the police eight years ago. For the last six years of my police service, I worked uh, one week of day shift and one week of late shift. So we started at three in the afternoon till 11. And that gave me time to do my uh, consultations in the morning. So I would do, um, it got to the stage the year before I left, I did four consultations uh, every morning um, and then went to work and did a back shift. Um, and then on my Monday off, uh, so I had every second Monday off, and I would do is the insanity of it. Um, six, seven, eight, or sometimes nine consultations. So I would leave the house at eight. I wouldn't be back in until ten o'clock that night, uh, and then go back into work in the police the, the next day. And granted, I was fifteen years younger than I am now. So um, the yeah, so it just I just grew my business, um, and then eight years ago, well. Nine years ago now, I decided that I was going to leave the police and just started putting uh, planning into that effect and then left the police and my business just moved into where it is just now. So that's kind of a brief resume of my journey. And a few other influences during that time. I used to be um, kind of socially conservative, so um, grew up religious and had all that stuff, you know. So um, And then I did a few courses uh, in the when I was in the police I did an undercover course. Um, so I would go in and dress as a heroin addict or a cocaine addict and go and buy drugs. Um, and that gave me real insight into um, not looking at behaviour, but actually looking at the individual. 
Um, so there was one, I remember one day we were going to, I was working with the, the, my partner that I was working with, my colleague, and we got in tow with three heroin addicts who were going to take us up to the drug dealer's door. And we only needed an introduction. That's all we needed. Okay. You know, that's all we needed. We just needed these guys to, and we just met them in the street and we got talking to them. And we were, we were going up to the um, the flat in the apartment um, to buy. And one of the guys started, I could see him racing out in front of us. And um, I kind of, I, the guy I was working with, I kind of just took him by the arm and asked him to hold back a little bit. And when we get into, when we get back to the office and we're doing our debrief, he said, "Why did you kind of hold me back?" And I said, "There was five of us, and there might only have been three or four deals of heroin, right?" I says, "And that guy needs that heroin to get by today." I says, "We don't need it to get by today. We can come back tomorrow because we are not heroin addicts, right?" <laughs> I says, "But he needs that. That's that's his need, and that's why he's acting like that." Um, and now we can discuss, I mean, it's, it's not for, for this discussion, we could have a conversation on legality and morality of drug use, which is a different conversation. But this guy needed the, this, you know, £10 bag of heroin to get by the, that day. Um, and it started giving me, it just opened my world to, um, yeah, behaviour being more than just what you see. There's a driving need behind that. There's an individual who has to act that way in that moment. It's the best that they can come up with, um, and that was a big that was a big change in my mindset. Um, and I, I started acting much more compassionately, or trying to, and kindly towards the world at that point. Um, and I think I'd always be well. I like to think I'd always be a kind of decent person anyway. I don't think it was cruel or brutal, other than to my dogs. Um, but it really, you know, it was a a moment in my life that I can identify that changed things for me. And then I just went into the pot, was in the pot, starts filtering through your other interactions. So a very unique situation to be in. Well, that is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not very many people have got those stories. <laughs> yeah. Oddly, I think I'm sitting on a podcast with two people that might have similar stories like that, but certainly not on my <laughs> side. Um, we can start another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> It's funny, actually, because it's not quite the same, but just when you were saying that, there was something that that really resonated with me, and that was things that are completely unrelated to dogs, Yeah. but really hits home with regards to how you see behaviour and how you see development of people. Because I remember, I remember hearing people talk about this, and it never really resonated with me that when my daughter was born two and a half years ago, I'd already been doing this for years. So I thought I had a very good understanding of development and stuff like that, but I was still a little bit judgmental on the human side. Yeah. As much as I was quite quite good at understanding with the dog side, when it, when it came to the owners or the people that were caring for the dogs, I could sometimes feel myself being quite judgmental. When my daughter was born, it kind of hit me. These people that are doing things that I deem to be immoral were babies. Yeah. yeah. Somebody's, somebody's done that to them. They're that way because of the way that they were raised, because of their social learning, you know, and of course, because of their genetics as well. Yeah. So 
that really hit home with me. And it just when you're talking about that, it made me sort of think, well, it's a very different situation, obviously. Like buying heroin to try and arrest a drug dealer is very different from having a baby, but no, it's very it's different a, situations yeah. coming to the same sort of conclusion. I think we can always, if we're, if we look at somebody and say somebody's having a bad day, and we, so, you know, somebody's having a bad day and that's why they're rude or, or aggressive towards you or or whatever kind of um, adjective you want to put on their behaviour. Um, so we can excuse the fact they're having a bad day, but then if we get somebody who's got a, a high level of um, really aberrant behaviour, we have to keep going back until we say, just as you've said there, that happened somewhere along their timeline, you know, I think the bigger philosophical discussion again that we then have is, well, we've got free choice. We have the ability to self-reflect, which we don't think, well, we don't know that other animals have so far. Um, and at, at some point you have to take personal responsibility for your own behaviour. But you also, going back to that is, yeah, do you have enough insight and prior learning that you can have insight and, self, and the ability to self-reflect? So it just keeps going further and further and further back, you know, um, and it becomes, it's interesting. That is interesting. It's it's similar to um, if if you have a dog and you can treat your dog the best, you can always just be positive reinforcement and stuff like that. But then in front of your dog, you're beating your kids. Yeah. yeah. Same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, a lot of people don't realize that dogs can pick up on that. Yeah, it doesn't even have that. to be your kids. Yeah, yeah, it could be your spouse. It could be your yeah. friends. You you get aggressive. Maybe you're drunk or whatever. Your dog yeah. sees that, and then they're like, "Oh, you know what? If my owner could get aggressive like that, absolutely." Can I? Yeah. yeah, social learning is important. You know, I will obviously not name names, and this was many years ago, but I remember I got called in for, a, and this was literally just a first consultant, just an initial consult, and I went there. And the husband and wife were there, and the husband goes, the dog is aggressive towards me. And at first, I was going through all the information. I was thinking, sounds like the dog has got an overattachment or possession of the wife. And so I went down that route until I noticed that when I went towards the wife, the dog was fine. Yeah. Then when I got closer to the wife, I saw bruising on her wrists. And I asked one question. When the dog goes for you, are you guys arguing? And immediately the man got aggressive towards me. Yeah. And guess what the dog did? Got aggressive towards him. Exactly. So from that, I managed to sort of just, I'm no cop, but I think it was kind of obvious that there was a bit of domestic abuse going on there. And I ended up, you know, calling the cops and getting them around to sort that out because that's not my my job to be doing that. People think that the dog is protecting you, but what the dog is more likely to be doing is saying that the equilibrium is now off and I want you to stop those aggressive behaviours because it means that I feel good again or feel safe. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a lot of time we misread it that the dog is trying to protect the person that, that yeah. you know, from the person's aggressing towards, whereas he's like, he just wants you to I stop. Know. Yeah. Just, just be cool. Can you go back to being cool again? That's why I was thinking more of a possession thing. Yeah. And then as soon as that happened, I was like, it's not even, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just a social aggression, which is yeah. throwing the dog off completely. 
Yeah. But it was a it was a very sad situation. On the flip side, I got a message months later from the wife. No issues with the dog. Everything was fine. The husband had moved out. Restraining order in place. But yeah. that's all about the social learning, the social balance of the household, things like that. Yeah. Just to move on from there, when you were working through all of that, I know you were working with your colleagues first, and then you were working with people that you didn't know. Uh, we mentioned this a little bit before we started recording, but the some of the issues that you get in Scotland and in the UK compared to some of the issues that we get out here in Singapore and Hong Kong and places like that, they're a little bit different just because of the nature of the dogs in the area. Um, what sort of issues were you experiencing? So there's um, the main ones, the, the main ones, and it's not really changed. Well, the main uh, symptoms that we see are the main observable behaviours uh, that people don't like. Yeah. So we've got lunging and barking in the lead, um, on lead or off lead towards dogs. Okay, so aggression and reactivity problems, we can lump them into one. Um, pulling in the lead, uh, not coming back when called. Uh, jumping up on visitors or people outside uh, and destructive behaviours. And they're still the main ones. Um, what I've seen over the last few years is, uh, and again, because I, people have been at home because of the pandemic, not just because people have been at home. There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on there as well, but um, dogs that can't be left on their own or and are increasingly anxious or shown anxious behaviours, so kind of unable to cope with the world, like going outside and being, you know, nervous wrecks outside. And that's, we have to look at, we're all products of the environment that we live in, and the world has gone through a major trauma in the last few years. It's been horrendous for so many people on so many levels. And there's that has to have an effect on a dog because they live with us. And just as you were saying, they feel everything. They're, they're sentient. They're sensitive. They know things are weird. So it's not just that our habits have changed. It's that our, you know, like staying up and working at home. It's the fact that people are now weirder than they were five years ago, you know. And I, I mean that kindly, you know. Mm. Um, you know like you see it in supermarkets or in the roads when people are less patient than they were before and, you know, stop taking my, you know, don't take my space, I'm going to take your space, you know, so behaviours that we might, and I'm careful of the words that I use, um, kind of rude behaviours, rude, you know, kind of rudeness, aggression, incivility, and they're just symptoms that people are having a really hard time or ha have had a hard time over the last few years, um, and that then reflects on our dogs. That's quite interesting that you talk about the pandemic and the change over that time, because when you started talking about that, you started talking about things that are more common in larger cities with more dense population. Because like if you're doing when we were doing like consultancy in Hong Kong or Singapore, even before the pandemic, all of that was already in place yeah. because when you've got the more dense population, it sounds terrible, but this is just the way it is, is that people tend to dehumanise each other. Yeah. Not just on the roads, but also in the city and with spatial awareness and things like that. So that's quite interesting that it's uh, it's almost caught up. I've never really thought about Scotland being like that, but not even Glasgow. Yeah. And Glasgow being the biggest city in Scotland, it's still yeah. a very small city. In the yeah, it's not a big city. 
not not mm-hmm. comparatively, it's not, yeah. you know. I mean, here in Singapore, it's a single city-state which has got <laughs> a larger population than the whole of Scotland. Yeah, yeah. You know? So that's, I did find that one quite interesting, speaking about the, it's almost like it joined into becoming more parallel yeah. to each other. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about the anxieties and the dogs, because that's something that also comes within a big city. And especially when you start looking at the genetics of, you know, jungle dogs or street dogs, where they become more skittish in general and less trusting of yeah. humans. So when you've got that poor socialization over the pandemic, with all the pandemic puppies, I suppose it's that that poor socialization has actually almost regressed the domestication of those particular dogs in a way. Yeah, and then it's interesting to see how the environment affects, so, and I don't know very much about it, but you've then got the um, epigenetics, so that's how the environmental changes that are going on just now can affect the genetic expression within the individual and then on offspring of that individual. Um, so those are that's on a genetic level that that happens. Um and that's probably really clumsy. They'll, you'll be, they'll be geneticists for sitting, if they're listening to this, tearing their hair out at that explanation. But um, the the environment has and can have an effect on a genetic level. Well, I know there's at least one because she's a client. Um, so I'll ask her next time I see her. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that was a good way of putting it, to be honest, because all too often we go down too technical. Yeah. And that's just not the best way to explain it to people. Um, what you were just talking about is a very good example of that is puppy mills. Yeah. When yeah. you've got generation upon generation of puppy mill dogs, it changes their epigenetics completely. Yeah. And they're, although they look the same as the pedigree they're supposed to be, their uh, behavior is completely different. And yeah. it even disrupts their uh, ancestral working code in some of the yeah. breeds as well, which is quite dangerous in a lot of ways because then you've got a powerhouse of a dog which doesn't have any working drive, yeah, which can be quite chaotic. But that's a topic for a different podcast, I think, because <laughs> that rabbit hole could very seriously get put down. So I did notice, going back over your journey, you went from being the Glasgow dog trainer and then you've obviously upgraded yourself to behaviour consultancy. Yeah. I remember when I had to do that, and that was effectively because of the very large number of aggression cases that I was being put on. Was it something similar for you, or what was the trigger? So with me, I started doing... My route into this was through the behaviour of my own dog, so that would be more the behavioural side of it. Um, And it, it depends kind of defining your terms and having delineation. Generally, in a broad sweeping terms, uh, you get the behavioural stuff, which can lean more towards the dog's emotional side. And then the training, which is just, can you do what I'm asking you to do? And do you know what I'm asking you to do? And they're both linked because we can't separate them. Um, But the, you know, so aggression, separation issues, um, stress, anxiety, um, fear-related behaviours, they were more they would be more the behavioural side. Traditionally, that's how people would more likely to define them. And then the training would be, can you teach a dog to walk on a loose lead and come back to you and called and to settle down when somebody comes into the house? 
Now, the problem that we've got is that the reason why the dog might not be able to walk in and lead is because they're so stressed outside and they might not be able to uh, settle down when somebody comes up and stop jumping on them because they're so excited and they can't emotionally regulate. Yeah. That's why we can't split them up. And the only reason I changed my the name was to say to people, I can help you with both sides of those. So if you're having behaviour problems with your dog, so basically if you don't like what your dog is doing, I can help you with that. Um, and then the, the the emotional side comes into that from our approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you settle yourself and think, awesome, now we can teach you. Yeah. Um, or if you can you set yourself and think, no, I can't, we will help you get there first. Then we can help you with the trick stuff and, you know, sit stays and all that kind of thing. Yeah, you know? absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the way I kind of uh, see it in my mind is that they're both separate and conjoined. Yeah. But I don't like to think of them as the same thing because you get a lot of people that are very good trainers. But the moment you've got a behavioural problem, they kind of get a little lost. And the other Train. way. Oh, yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, actually, that's a very good point as well. Like, You meet a lot of very, very good veterinary behaviourists that once they've got the behaviour stuff sorted out, they don't really know how to, no to do <laughs> yeah. anything else. Yeah, um, no clue how to teach a dog to walk on a loose lead. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, it's it's almost like the the training side of things works as a toolkit a lot of the time, so that you can help with the yeah. behaviour side of things and vice versa. So it's it's a it's it's love and marriage. You know, it, yeah, it's got to go together, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the same. And the thing is with that, it's like we, we tend to think of our mind and our body as two different things, but they're not. I don't know. This is me, okay? This is the, the space that I occupy, the, the organic space that I occupy in the world for as long as I'm here. And that's all of it, you know? So you can't separate digestion from your endocrine system because they go together. Stress affects your ability to digest and your your, your nutrition affects your ability to regulate your hormones, you know, so you've got that. I think it's when we we tend to, and I th- this can be one of the problems that we have with learning theory um, and operant learning and the, the quadrants and bracket, uh, sorry, in quotation marks, is that we tend to want to delineate things so that we can understand them, but in delineation of them, we now put borders around them, which means that we don't flow across that border you know it's well it's a bit of a coincidence that you were talking about that actually just earlier on today i was being interviewed on a on a tv show about the link between dog behavior and nutrition yeah and that's exactly that it's about how your body and your mind are so closely linked that we do need to look at the dog's nutrition to see if we can help improve the behaviour based on that. And we do need to look at their activity levels and we do need to look at how they're being looked after. And then, of course, you've got the behaviour modification and then you've got the training as well. But not all they all link together. It's not a case of, you know, oh, yeah. you've got a vet to do this, you've got a nutritionist to do this, you've got X to do that. I mean, Francis, who I was with earlier on today, he works very closely with us because... That's what we need, and he needs vice versa, and the same with the vets. And I'm sure you're the same where you are. You've got all these networks of people that do different parts yeah. of yeah. the game, as it were. 
because it's not isolated. Even within our little sphere, it's all combined. But when yeah. you get bigger and bigger and bigger, you've got to work together. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And also, that's the same with other trainers. Like I never understand when people get very competitive mm-hmm. because yeah. there's plenty of dogs that need help. Yeah, And you cannot be everything to everyone. There's people, even within Noble Canine, there's people that I can't work with that Jay can work with amazingly. And there's people yeah. that Jay can't work with that I can work with amazingly. And sometimes you've got to refer them out to a different company completely because they're a better suit. Yeah, And I think that's another very important thing because people also are being coached. Yeah, I, Sometimes we focus so much on the dog, we don't think about the actual owner and the fact that you're actually not a dog trainer you're a dog training coach for the owner yeah that's that's really what it is so i've just realized there we're kind of going deep into topics which are great which i'd love to keep talking about but we also can't have a five-hour podcast yeah yeah, that's big so what i'd like to do is skip forward on to the actual aversive tools themselves and the shot collar ban because i'm thinking you'll you'll have a little bit more of a finger on the pulse about what's going on over there and my hope is that by highlighting what's been happening in the uk as well as other areas um that have also done the ban is that people over here and people in the states and people in australia although there's certain areas of australia that have already put bans on these things that they're going to start realising that, you know what, we should be looking at this seriously and seeing if that's something that we should be doing. Um, I'd, I don't want to be on the soapbox. I'll let no. you guys do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just to be clear, before we go down this route, I will have to play somewhat of a devil's advocate. So for people listening that know me, they're going to be like, what is Fraser saying? Why is he, why is he talking like that? It's just because... In my opinion, you've got to try your best to see both sides of the argument. And if you can't come up with one reason to keep the tools, you've got no business coming up with the next 50 to take them away. Yeah. You know what I mean? So when we go down that, I just wanted to be clear on that one so nobody For thought sure. it was yeah. a turncoat or anything. Um, okay, so on this... Could you just give us a brief description for the listeners on what aversive tools actually are and how they're used and why they're used? Okay, so it comes down to um, it's what's motivating the behaviour, all right? So every behaviour has a motivation, okay? So your behaviour, you and Jay's behaviour of coming on and doing this podcast is to build your podcast and to put out good information about positive dog training, okay? And also it's enjoyable as well, all right? So we come on here and we have a blether and everything's cool, okay? Um, then my motivation to come on here is probably for the same reasons, okay? Um, so we've got similar motivations to do the behaviour of these podcast behaviours, all right? Um, every single behaviour, everything that we do, um, so I don't know, are you videoing this as well? Is it going on YouTube or just your podbean? It's just going to be on audio, Right, okay, so if you're watching, if you were watching this, you'll see me drink, uh, taking a drink of water um, throughout the, the, the recording. You might even hear it. 
Now, the reason for that is as I'm talking, and I've had three consultations this morning, so I was talking for the best part of three hours, um, my hydration level reduces because I'm talking, because I'm expelling um, moisture from my body. So I then have to replenish that. So as I get thirsty, that increases my motivation to drink, okay, which then replenishes my hydration levels, okay? So every single behaviour that we do is motivated by something. There's something that we're trying to achieve by doing the behaviour. Um, and the the shortest, the, the, the most simplistic, the most simplistic way we can describe it is we can use um, the carrot or the stick, okay? So I want to work to get the carrot. I want to work to stop the carrot from being taken away from me. I want to avoid the stick, or if the stick is applied to me, right? So if I'm being hit by the stick, I want to work in order to escape that, okay? So any aversive tools are some aversive tools are something which works by I'm looking to avoid it being ha happening in the first place, okay? Or if it's applied, escaping that. All right. So now it has to be aversive enough. So it has to be unpleasant enough. So that's uncomfortable, painful, or annoying, or frightening, which would be the emotion, one of the emotions attached to it, enough that I want to behave in order to avoid that consequence. Okay, so those are aversive tools. Now, if you think about it, that's only part of it. The second part of it are the emotions that go with it. Most of us will have an experience of a, a boss, a colleague, somebody at school, sibling, your parent that doesn't treat you well. Okay, and when they're not treating you well, what are they building? What what associations are they building? How do you start feeling about them? Okay, so you now say, I, I don't like that person because of how they treat me. Okay, and then it gets further complicated because, especially in the parent-child dynamic, is that the parent provides everything as well. Okay, so they're providing everything, but they're also providing things that we don't like, and that now puts us into conflict. Okay, so that's just a kind of really a real brief resume of what an aversive tool is and the effect that it has on behavior. What about if I just don't like a person because I just don't like the way they look? Right. Is there a link for that? Yeah. So you would look at there is I'd have to start examining how, why you would, if it was with a person, I just don't like the way that they look. And that could be, so is your, and I'm, I'm not taking, you know, taking a pisser in here, Jay, right? <laughs> is your, your hair's longer than a ponytail? Yeah, yeah, it is. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. So say for talking sake, that's just not my style. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I go, I don't like Jay because he's got a ponytail. That's nonsense. Oh. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. But it is a preference that I have. So... I don't get to, you don't get to decide that I don't like ponytails any more than I get to decide that you do like them. Right. Okay. So you can't say, well, what's the problem with a ponytail? I just have a problem with it. I don't, by the way. Okay. But, <laughs> right, but the same way is you can't turn around and say, but you shouldn't have a problem with ponytails because that's how you feel. But how we feel is not reality. Yeah. Okay. For humans, because we're able to rationalize past it. But as best as we know, the dog can't rationalize past it. So if a dog just is, is just frightened of you and shown fearful behaviors, we just go, well, that's that's where we are. So let's try and work through that. 
the, the human and dog model is slightly different because of our mm. in quotations higher evolutionary status. Okay, and we'll take that with a pinch of salt. But I, I get what you mean because sometimes, like, I had a client whose dog is just afraid of a plastic bag. Yeah. We can't rationalize that for them, you know. We we, we no. can't tell them that, oh, you know, uh, we, you can't talk to the dog and tell the dog, a, a plastic bag is fine, don't worry about it, and then the dog's going to be okay. It, it just doesn't yeah. work like that. With that, we'll not go too deep into this, but the main aversive tools you've got are, the big one that's the main topic at the moment is the shock collar, which is basically a remote control collar that people press a button and it electrocutes the dog. That's as simple as yeah. you can really explain it. You've got prong collars, which are quite nasty bits of kit as well. Um, I actually remove them from potential clients and don't quote unless they give it to me. Then you've got choke chains, uh, slip leashes, things like that. Um, and, and there's a whole host of these things. Um, for example, the choke collars, they're very, very old-fashioned, they've been used for many, many years. They're used as both an actual tool to choke the dog in an attempt to stop them from pulling on a lead and to shock them to get them to recall and things like that. Yeah. Which is a nice way of saying chucking a chain at a dog to scare them into coming back to you. Yeah. Um, so I'll not go to, we'll not go down too deep into that because I have done another podcast where we went at length about training methodologies and how and why they're supposed to work or do work. So what I do want to ask now is the the big question of what are the drawbacks, what are the negatives of using these tools such as shock collars on our dogs? What impact does that have negatively on the dog's behaviour, on our relationship with them, etc.? Okay, so firstly... There's, we've got the effects of the associations that take place with the with the e collar. Okay, um, so the, the anytime that e collar is the, the stimulation is applied, and I will be neutral with my language here. Okay, I, I talk about the application of electricity. Okay, um, so we're applying electricity, which is annoying. In order for it to work, okay, it has to be annoying, painful, or uncomfortable enough for it to have an effect on the dog's behaviour. Okay. Any time that we're doing that, any time we're doing that, we're building associations that the scenario that the dog finds themselves in is linked to that unpleasant or painful stimulus, okay, or sensation. So the dog now starts saying those things are predictors that this is going to happen on my neck, okay. And so that's first, we're starting to introduce those associations and that's where it can that that's the damaging part okay some dogs can go over it okay sorry appear to be able to go over it or have enough going on else going on in their life that they can put up with it but that doesn't mean that it's okay and the example that i would use for that is most of us who are you know robust resilient adults can put up with a, a boss that they don't like Okay, or a colleague that they don't like. But if you were to ask anybody, would you want that person removed from your workspace? I don't think there's anybody that would honestly turn around and say, no, I don't want them. I enjoy them being there. Okay, they cause me grief, they cause me annoyance, they cause me pain, they cause me stress. And if they go, everything's cool. 
Okay, so it's that association. So our ability just to go on with our day or to have a laugh and a joke with the rest of the people at our work doesn't remove the fact that we still want the bozo out of the office. You know, um, we just want we want to work for a a more happy life. So let's say I had a gun to your head, yeah. which in itself would be very similar to yeah. an aversive tool. <laughs> but let's say I've got a gun to your head and I say, what are the benefits of using irritation, discomfort or pain to prevent or promote a behaviour? Okay. Just take the bullet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so we've got... If they didn't work for the human, they wouldn't do. We wouldn't use them. Okay. So if these tools, so when people turn around and say they don't work, that's not true. Okay. They work really well. All right. They do. They work well. But that's not to say that we shouldn't. That we should be doing it. Okay. So there's two different things. Okay. So whether we can do it or whether we should be doing it, and the should element that's your ethics at that point. Okay. Ethics is part of it. Can we use an, a, a, an alternative that is less aversive? And the answer is almost always yes. Okay. So um, they work, okay, and they work really quickly for us because it gets us our result. So it's not we press the button on the e-collar, okay? That's the human part of the behavior. And the reinforce the motivator for it is I want my dog's behavior to change. And the reinforcer for that is immediate change in the dog's behaviour. So that's the human feedback loop, and that's why we work, okay? But that's to say, that's then this again this goes back into your belief systems. One of the mantras I'll have is, um, I try and live my life that I'm not having fun at somebody else's expense. So when we use e-collars on the dog, the human part of the equation gets what they want, a dog that is doing what they want them to do, but the dog is paying the price for that. Okay, and they're paying the price because we're applying aversive stimuli, you know, painful, uh, annoying, uncomfortable sensations to the dog. Um, and if we, the roles were reversed, would you want to be subjected to that same thing? And again, being honest, the answer is no. And there's a reason they abolish slavery, right? Well, exactly, right? because that's a perfect example, Jay, okay, because the white man got benefit, right, <laughs> at the rest of the world's expense, right, and what an abomination. I will just point out, though, as well, is that there's more slavery happening today than there has at any other point in history. Yeah. So and it's not it's something that's gone. No, no, and it's somebody's paying the price. I know I said I was going to pl- play devil's advocate here, but I just wanted to add on as well is that just because these work, they work for, as you said, the human feedback loop. And of course, it's dependent on how these tools are actually used. But most people use them as a suppressant. That doesn't mean that you're effectively educating the dog to do something instead of you're actually just forcing the dog not to do. And the moment you stop a behavior without replacing it with another behavior, you create frustration and stress, which will eventually come out and manifest in another most likely negative behavior. 
Right, I, I probably have a little bit of issue with that, okay, yeah. about when people say that the dog is just, that we're just suppressing behaviour, okay, because okay. an e-collar works on, um, it works on applying the stick and removing the stick, okay. So the dog is now doing, it, it's it's not doing things, um, it's not doing behaviours so that it, the, the stick isn't applied, and then when the stick is applied, it now does behaviours. Okay, so we're now under negative reinforcement contingency. Now, the problem that we've got is if we're using an e-collar for recall, which can be done really effectively, if you're using the e-collar for recall and that's all you're using and you're not building motivation anywhere else, you're now always going to have to use the e-collar because the dog is coming back in order to stop either the sensation or the threat of the sensation. So, so could, you, we can, could you not argue then that you're suppressing the behaviour of staying away rather than educating the behaviour of recall? So you, but you've got both there, and this is when we talked earlier on about the delineation of things. Okay, yeah. so if I am, if I am, so what's the temperature like in Singapore just now? Hot as balls. Right. Just, okay. Just so what, hot and hot. That's it. About thirty-seven degrees, mate. Right. Okay. And humid. You're very, about 100%. Okay, oh right, because it's in the jungle, right, okay? I know it's not in the jungle, but you're in a jungle nation, okay? I, actually, so, I am in the jungle. I literally live right on the edge <laughs> of the jungle. <laughs> so when you are outside in a hot, humid environment, okay, and you go inside into a cooler, less humid environment, are you escaping the humidity or accessing the um, relief? And it's both, okay? You're right. No, you're right. absolutely right. They're both working. I'm, I'm, um, I'm stopping the behaviours of being outside, okay? But and I'm now doing more of the behaviours of going inside. Because the aircon, which as you can see is not working great at the moment here, the aircon is a positive reinforcer. Yeah. But also but also the, the coolness is, a, is the relief. So the, the coolness is both a positive reinforcer because it provides coolness, but it also provides relief from the heat. If you're using it to stop aggression, aggressive behaviours, okay, and the, the reason why the dog is now not lunging and barking is because of this or the threat of this, okay, of the electricity, um, then, easy pup, uh, then you are just suppressing behaviour. Now, if you now remove the e-collar, what are you left with? Okay. So this is the, it's, it's a very um, interesting sort of uh, topic, this, because even when you have the science of it all laid out, there's a certain amount of semantics that you can argue yeah. between all four of the quadrants. Yeah. Um, so to prevent us going down that too deep, I think it's pretty clear to say that the use of the e-collar, the use of the shock collar, so let's call it a shock collar, because... Uh, E-collars can also be used for beeps or vibrations and things yeah. like that, um, which is another topic all on its own. The use of that shock collar can be to either suppress or to suppress and relief, depending on how it's being used. Yeah. Now, if you've got a shock collar and you're using it to suppress and relief, is that the best method of doing what you're wanting? Because... If you were to tell me that a shock collar needed to be used to teach recall or, and I actually had this one with another trainer 
to teach a puppy potty training. Yeah. I'm going to call it, call you up and say, that's probably yeah. going to be at the very end of my list of effective ways of teaching that behavior. So the answer to your question is no, they're not necessary. Okay, they're just not necessary, and that the um, the motivation can be um, built elsewhere. Okay, so I yes, I will work to escape a burning building. Okay, I will. All right, because that's survival. But I'm also going to work really hard for a million pounds. Okay, now if you are putting me in a situation where you want me to move because you're setting the building on fire, I now have a problem with you. Okay, so that's the association, but get brought back in again. But see if you're if you're using a million pounds trips to the Bahamas, okay, you know, all these all those cool things, you know, nice meals and you know, trips out to the theater and all that you just list all the things that I like and start providing them for me. I'm now going to do the behavior quickly. And I'm going to like you in the process. So the example that I always use from this is when I was in the police, my first two inspectors, one of them was an ogre and a horrible, I mean, truly horrible human being. Okay, just, I can't, I can't even begin to tell you how much of a horror bag this guy was. I'd, I did enough work to keep him off my case. I did the minimum amount to keep him off my case. I only did what was necessary to keep him off my back. The second guy I come in, I would have run in a burning building for this guy. If he asked me to do something, everybody in the team jumped and attacked it with vigour because he treated us well, you know, and he told us we were doing well. So it's it's not just the behaviour, it's the level of enthusiasm that you've got for it and how you feel about doing it, you know. So there's there's a number of factors there. So if... There's, I don't think there's anything that we can train with an e-collar that we can't train for without, sorry, we can't train without it. And when we train without it, we get a happier learner. If I said, playing the devil's advocate here, that you've got an extremely aggressive dog, this dog's not just lunging at other dogs, this dog is lunging at old women. Yeah. The owners have said that they've tried positive reinforcement and it didn't work. So now they're turning to e-collars or shock collars because they've been told that if they don't sort the dog's behaviour out, the dog's going to be put down. Would you not say that that's a fairly good reason to be trying such an extreme method? Okay, so there's, it's a, we used to get it, and the and this goes back a long time now. I mean, I started my police um, career in 1992. And, I was just um, born then. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, I was just a, a lad. And one of the questions that we were asked at the time when I joined was how to feel about female cops. And one of the, the arguments that was always getting was, so what? how much do you weigh, Fraser? Because you, you look like a substantial man. I'm 115 kilograms. Right, okay. So that's significantly bigger than I am. That's a unit, okay? And you're muscular as well, okay? I can see it in your shoulders, okay? Right. Now... The amount of times that I arrested that I was in the street and I worked in the Gorbals, okay, which is a was at the time Gorbals. That's, and where, that's where I lived when I was at uni. Right. Okay. So it was it had its moments. Okay. Did so the amount of times that I had to arrest a man, a violent man, your size, in ten years on the street was none. Okay. None. We're all we're all gentle giants, mate. We're right. very gentle okay. people. 
So basically what used to happen was people would use the argument against female cops is what happens if they have to arrest a violent man like Fraser, okay? A violent man, Fraser size is going to do most people in, let alone women, okay? Just for the record, guys, a violent man like Fraser, Fraser's not a violent man. <laughs> violent man, that size, okay? So we, we have this extreme, a lot of time we give this extreme argument, okay? This super extreme argument that, tries to justify a position that we've got, okay? I think it's really lazy debating in the first place. And the second one is you've given that dog, so that, ex that extremely aggressive dog that's lunging and barking uh, at old women in the street and is going to get put down if we don't sort it straight away. We've already failed the dog well before that, okay? So that's the first thing. And the next thing I turn around and say is, why are you taking that dog that's so dangerous out in the street around people where they're a threat? There's a reason why we don't we don't do that to humans anymore, and we don't do it to humans because the level of uh, aversive um, stimulus that we'd have to put in for behaviour change becomes inhumane. Okay, so we've got our state hospital in in Scotland is in South Lanarkshire. Okay, that's where we keep, and there's there's hardly anybody in it. Okay, there's there's so few people there. Okay, but there. are offenders that are so violent and beyond rehabilitation that they have to be locked up for the rest of their life, okay? Now, that's to keep society safe and also it's inhumane for us to euthanise those people because they're human beings and we live in a society, okay? Right. Now, if we've got a dog like that and they are, if we, the level of um, pain that we would have to subject that dog to in order to change the behaviour and continue to subject that dog to starts becoming inhumane. And our, when our dogs are in pain, so if, if your dog was dance, dying of cancer, we don't just keep that dog alive. We have the opportunity, we have the ability and the duty to euthanise those that dog. So if a dog is so behaviourally unwell that... Um, all the, your management and all the rest of the, and, and, and that's caused by stress. That's a dog that is so stressed in their environment. I wouldn't want to live like that. If that was me, I'd be putting a bullet in my, my brain pan, you know, because I don't want to live in a world where I can't cope with being out through the door, okay? But I have agency and I could make that decision on my own. Your dog can't. Now, the, the, the further argument that people turn around and say is positive trainers would rather see that dog put to sleep than saved. And the, the test then is a life worth living. So if the life is the life that we are subjecting that dog to in order to keep them alive means severe shock over and over and over and over again, that's not a life worth living, I don't think. And then the, 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 the other part of that is that then people turn around and say, well, it only be once, you only have to use it once. And the, the further argument that is, if you're only having to use it once, your positive methods are going to work. They might just take a little a little while, and I'm talking a month, you know, if they're applied properly. So that's that's the model that I'll work from. Um, and there's ethics in there, you know, care, welfare for the dog. I always feel like with the amount of canine cognitive knowledge that we have today, there is absolutely no need for behavioural euthanasia. Now, bear with me here. If a dog's behaviour has become so extreme that it's beyond rehabilitation, 
that has now moved out of behavioural and into mental illness and medical. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's yeah. That's that's the kind of way I look at it because that's a massive topic. The whole idea of behavioural euthanasia. There's literally millions of dogs every year all over the world. They get put down because they nipped someone. Yeah, I know. I know. Because and they, the problem that we've got with that there, Fraser, is um, who makes the decision? Who do we have in the dog training world that's such an expert that now goes it's now neurological or um, medical? You know, so and I, I, I go I'd, and I know some really good vet behaviorists. You know that I've met them at conferences and stuff like this. And I go, I, I don't think any of us are uh, have the level of knowledge for that yet. No, one one of the vets that we work with here has a a very good thinking on this. Is that when a dog comes in with behavioural issues, it should not be down to one individual to make that call. There should be a number of medical vets and behavioural specialists talking about the case to figure out if there's another alternative. And if there is, behavioural euthanasia should be off the table. And the thing about it is, again, it's when you're... I do expert testimony for court. I just did an assessment a few weeks ago. If the dog is biting and they're biting at such level it's causing severe injury, that dog's not safe. And there's no guarantee, either with an a, a, an e-collar or positive training, that will say that that dog will never bite again. And when a dog bites, it's doing people severe damage. I mean, like life infl- uh, life-changing damage, okay? That dog is not safe for a human society. So the same way as if people are... Um, if people are shown that level of violence when they lose their temper, they inflict that level of damage against another human being. We lock them up for a long, long, long time, you know, um, but we just don't, we shouldn't be doing that with dogs because the more humane thing for us to do with them is to put that dog to sleep because they only live for 12 years, you know. So there's there's a, there's a few things going on there um, and that that, it's the level of danger that an aggressive dog shows to the public. So with there, when you're saying that, you know, small injuries and most of the ones that I get for court, they're minor injuries. So what I, I say in my report is when the dog loses its temper effectively, okay, or something happens and the dog lashes out, it's not lashing out to such a degree that it's a danger to the public. People get injured, but you fall over and hit, you know, it's the same as when you, you drive down and the, a child runs out in a 30 mile an hour limit and gets hit by a car, if the person's doing 30 miles an hour driving, there's, there's going to be some injury to the child. But that's why it's 30 miles an hour. That's why the limit's 30 miles an hour and not 50. Because Absolutely. those kill children, you know. Right, so we spoke about extreme aggression. What about working dogs, like military dogs, police dogs, sports dogs? A lot of these trainers use shock collars yep. and aversive tools with the argument that they need them to get the dog to do the job that they've been employed to do. Okay, so a couple of things. We're going, to, we're going to split them, okay, for this purpose of this argument. Police and military dogs and sports dogs, okay? okay. So police and military dogs, um, those dogs, that's a requirement for that role, okay? So humans have decided that the dog is required to do that role, okay? With the um, the sports dog, it's not a requirement. Humans have decided that that we that we want to do those activities with those types of dogs. 
So that's now about what we want. Okay. Now the test that I'll have is I don't like dog sports anyway, and I don't like very many dog sports. Okay. And I don't like very many dog sports because of our need to prove ourselves to ourselves or to somebody else about how good a trainer that we are so that we can put a rosette. Okay. The rosette's for us, it's not for the dog. Okay. A ribbon or a rosette or be the world champion at IPO. Okay. I turn around and say, your dog really doesn't care. Okay. Does not care at all. There isn't anything that we that we are doing in those sports that we can't replicate elsewhere without our pressure. Okay. So if you do agility, yeah, you can do all the stuff that you do in agility in your back garden. Okay. You can do it at a public park. You can do it out in the, the woods. Okay. There isn't anything, any to any benefit to the dog that in an agility course that you're not able to replicate elsewhere. And when you're not competing or doing it, and even if it's at a local level and just as a fun club, we now go, my dog didn't perform as well as that other person's dog, so I now feel bad. And when I feel bad, my dog starts paying the price for it. And a dog, the only, even if we're the coolest person in the world, right, the price the dog now starts paying is, dad feels weird, he's acting weird, and now it's weird for me. So I'll do it with when I'm working with dogs in order to try and get them playing more so that they're feeling better and they're less reactive. And I'll say to the client, does the dog bring the ball? Does, sorry, does the dog play with a ball? And most people turn around and say, the dog doesn't bring the ball back. And I, I have to fight the urge to say, that's not the question I asked you. Right? <laughs> the question I asked you is, your dog, will your dog play with a ball? Because if a dog will play with a ball, we can play with a dog with a ball, right? And now we can shape what we want. So for that, the dog won't retrieve the ball to my feet or my hand. And I'm like, is the dog dropping the ball and do you have to walk two feet to go and get it? When you're playing with your dog, who cares? Because you would do that with a three-year-old if the, dog, well, the three-year-old doesn't kick the ball exactly. back to my feet. Right? Now, I'm <laughs> sorry, dogs are much easier to play with than three-year-olds. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> because the game there for the three-year-old is now I'm going to keep it away from dad. And that's the game. Right, so when we stick these arbitrary human rules in for the sake of our ego, which is what competition sports are, Okay, the dog starts suffering again. So we're going to park that there. So I just turn around and say, if you're having to do, if you're doing a sport where an e-collar is required, rethink your sport. Okay. So, so on trainer top of friend, that, would you not say that anything that you're doing within the sporting environment that requires a shot collar could also absolutely. be shaped in a different way anyway? Without just a doubt, take a little bit more pre, a little bit more pre, without a doubt, a little more bit more skill. Time. Yeah, more skill. I don't think more. Uh, I think more learning how to do it. I don't think more time. So I've got a friend who's a horse trainer. She's in Sweden, and she she put I see her t- putting videos up. She does dressage and she trains positively. And um, the comments that she often gets are, "Yeah, but in dressage, the the horse has to be wearing this amount of tack because that's the rules. The rules need changed." Okay. So if the, yeah. if the horse has to be wearing a, a you know a, a, a um, halter that cuts across the band of the nose and a bit, you know, and you have to wear spurs just because this is what we did in the dark ages, rethink your sports rules. Well, even in rugby, I remember when I first started playing rugby, you had loads of stuff that you could do. Like you could post yourself by putting your head on the ground, making a V and posting the ball back. 
Now, I can't remember when they changed it, but when they changed it, I remember thinking to myself, why are they changing that? And then somebody said to me, Fraser, how many concussions have you had? Yeah, I know. I know. Ah. Yeah, that's why. That's why. Yeah, that's why. It's the same sort of idea. If it's causing harm, it needs to be changed. And the difference is, okay, and this is the big difference because they're talking about in soccer, football, proper football, soccer, okay? Um, the not allowed, especially in, um, I think it's the children's games, they're, they're either have banned or are banning heading the ball because of concussion, right? Now, the which I, I, I think is a good idea, okay, for children, right? The difference is with adults, you can make a decision about whether you want to engage in that dangerous sport. But the bigger question there is who's paying the bill for that when you get a concussion and the taxpayer is here. Okay, so that's then the bigger discussion again. Okay, so we've got when we are able to make those decisions for ourselves, it's a much different um, uh, discussion to be had. We decide that we are taking the dog to do a ring sport. The dog doesn't decide to go there. And the dog doesn't decide that they're going to get an e-collar on them. We decide that for them. Right, so that's that's the sports side, okay? Now, the second part with the, the military and the, and the police, um, I wonder there about their training methods, okay? The level of knowledge, um, their ability to apply it, their ethics, okay? Their attitudes towards themselves, the public, and uh, their dogs, so those are all things which would uh, merit further examination. And if your dog, and I worked with, so this is, you're not seeing him there, so Logan, my dog, he's a big American bulldog and he latched onto stuff and wouldn't come off, okay? And I mean properly when I got him, like till exhaustion. And I have taught him positively how to let go of a tug mid-play, which is exactly what the same as somebody grabbing a, a dog, grabbing a hold of a, a man target and dragging him down. You know, so if I can do it with a dog who is not bred specifically for that purpose, and I can do it training positively, I don't see how anybody's got an excuse not to. The di- the single difference is until we get to that stage, um, again, the human liability. For that, so in special forces soldiers, okay, so like you know, special forces in the um, the trained Malinois, that dog does need to be silent because people die if they're not. If the police dog goes onto a suspect and doesn't come off, that's now a lawsuit and or a serious injury and criminal charges towards the police. Okay, so the argument there is slightly different, slightly different. Okay, but then we go back further. Have we trained that dog properly to put the dog in that position? And the answer to that is no. So just to add on to that, because it's just a little bit that I'm aware of, is that both uh, Lauren Langham and Victoria Stilwell have worked directly with the Metropolitan Police Dogs. Yeah. Use positive training for them, which is... Probably one of the reasons, I don't know this for sure, but it's probably one of the reasons why it took 10 years because they wanted to make sure that they could effectively train yeah. police and military dogs without the use uh, of the shock collars. So yeah. it's not that it can't be done. It's that you're you're right. They need to make sure that they've got the knowledge and yeah. the ability to do it. The, the example of that is that, uh, when Roger Bannister ran the sub four-minute mile, nobody thought it could be done before he did it, right? 
And then within the year after that, another three people had done it. And there's now been 50, I don't know what the stats are, 50, 100 people have done it since then, right? It's because somebody turned around and said, he turned around and said, you can do this in less than a, less than four minutes. And as soon as he did it, other folk went like, so it's not impossible. I just need to learn how to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> Jumping back to the military and police talks, uh, a lot of them don't realize that the well-trained ones that have been positively taught to, to bring down a suspect and then let go, it's a game to them as well. Yeah. If yeah. you positively do it, you do it right, it's a game to them, and then they see the reward in bringing down the suspect and letting go without doing too much harm. Yeah. So that was one thing I remember listening to, uh, to Lauren, Lauren Langham talk about this on, a, I can't remember if it was a Zoom call or if it was a video. But she was talking about how the general purpose dogs previously would only be able to have like three or four roles or three or four jobs. But by using concept training, yeah. they've now been able to increase that to like 15 jobs. So the dog yeah. is now able to track the granny that got lost in the woods, look after the little girl while the officers sweep the house and take yeah. down the bad guy all on the same shift. Yeah. Because the gamification of that training has made such a big impact. Okay, so that's us spoken about military dogs, police dogs, and working dogs, and sport dogs. But what about special needs dogs? So you hear people talking about e-collars, and this is why the distinction between e-collars and shock collars becomes a little bit more important. There are people that will use shock collars at a very low level, they say, to train deaf or blind dogs for recall. Now, whether that's a shock collar using electricity pulsing or vibration, would you not say that that's a good use of that tool for those dogs? All right. So when I'm having any um, kind of discussion with people, it's it's looking at the level of the, the, the skill and how skilled they are on debate, okay? So a lot of time what will happen is people will go to the most extreme version of, well, what about, and that's the, what we're saying there about, you know, the dog that's bitten multiple people and is lunging and barking at old ladies in the street and you can't walk the dog down the street. So that's the most extreme example because what they're wanting you to do is to say yes and have an agreement, okay? So we've got these absolutes, all right? And the... We've got, that's where your ethical standard is important, okay? So if you've got um, your normal bell curve of your population, so that's with most dogs, okay? Now, the, the vast majority dogs fit within that group, okay? And then you've got your outliers. So let's say we're looking at biddability as a characteristic. So you've got dogs that are super, super highly biddable, at one end of the scale, and they're in low numbers. Then you've got the bulk of your population, which are normal levels of biddability, and then your low level of biddability, and they're low numbers as, as well. So it's a normal bell curve. And if you're listening to this and you don't know what that uh, term is, just Google it and you'll see the graph, okay? So your special needs dogs, they're not on your normal bell curve because the first thing that they've got not going for them is they can't hear, okay? So that's the first thing, they can't hear. All right. Now, if we've heard the argument that the it, you reach out and touch the dog through space with the e-collar, okay, so that's the argument. 
it's a much more salient cue for the dog. Okay. Now I'm willing to accept that that's a possibility. Um, and I'll say to people, for a dog, say it's a vibration uh, collar. Okay. Right. Is it only a vibration collar? No, it has the ability to give an electric shock as well. What happens if the dog doesn't listen to the e-collar, sorry, the vibration? What happens next? Okay. Um, and if the answer is I'm going to start turning the electricity up, the dog now starts getting shocked, we're now not training positively at all. Okay. If the dog is a low-level um, sensation, I've worn these gloves, I've tried these collars on and I've gone through them, okay? If the low-level sensation is now the cue for can you come back towards me and the dog doesn't respond to that cue and the volume gets turned up, the intensity gets turned up, we're now not training positively, okay? So you're using them exactly the same as every other e-collar on the planet is using them, do this or else. And it's do it or else, I'll start turning the volume up or the intensity up on the um, uh, e-collar, on the shock, okay? If you're having um, the dog, a deaf dog, so they can't hear you, so it's either you have to use um, visual cues so the dog can see you, see you giving your cues, or they have to have um, kinesthetic cues so the dog has to be touched, okay? That's a training issue then, okay? So the way that I would say you've either got, you completely desensitize the dog to the vibration only, and you only buy a vibrating collar, which means if you press the button and the dog doesn't turn around and respond to you, you go back to doing more training. It's not more vibration, okay? Because that's now more of get back in here, okay? So properly um, desensitizing the dog and or... We teach the dog that things in the environment are signals for the dog to check in with you. Okay. So um the me approaching the front door with my dog when the lead is on is his signal to wait two feet from the door so that I can open the door. Me stepping out, I don't even have to say to him, I step out into my hallway, because an apartment building I live in, my flats. I step out onto my hallway, and that's his signal to wait with me. Okay. And I don't have to ask him. So he's picking up these environmental cues that they mean something. When I'm working with dogs that are showing that are aggressive or aggression and reactivity problems, I aim to teach the dog the other dog or other person is your signal to check in with mom and dad. Okay? And it's just a signal. The problem that we've got is that people think that, and it comes from parenting, I say you do. So I ask you to come in, you don't respond. I now ask you more. And the threat level has now started to get in here now. And now we're no longer asking you to come in because I'm asking you to. I'm asking you to come in because I'm telling you to or else. So this is when we start repeating cues. And this is why words are so important between yeah. saying command or cue. Yeah. I always try to put it this way. If, if somebody gives you a command, you have a choice. You either obey yeah. the command or you don't. That's your yeah. choice. A cue, on the other hand, is a very well-drilled action. It's not a case. You're not even being asked to do it. The cue means that you do this action because that's what you've been drilled and trained to do. So I know I keep using it as an example because I think rugby might have been mentioned earlier on in the yeah. podcast. But when, we were, when I was playing rugby, you're at the line-out. Somebody does a line-out call. 
the captain or whoever's called that line-out call is not commanding everybody in the team to do something. It's yeah. a cue. Everybody's on the same team. They know exactly what that cue is meant to mean. And in the dog's way, each cue or each signal means that there is an action that has to be done based on the drilling and training they've done, rather than do or else. Yeah. So it's, it's a it, what you're saying makes perfect sense. And and in fact, up until fairly recently, I was very much of the thinking, well, you know, the, the vibration cue, using the vibration as a cue for deaf dogs is the best way of doing it until I started to dig in and go down that rabbit hole. It's a very effective way of doing it, no doubt. Yeah. But it's not the only way. No. What you're saying there is exactly the other the other ways of doing it. And the moment you open that box to having that vibration collar, you're opening up that discussion to potentially have a shock collar. Yeah. So even and though you couldn't use it harmlessly, just because you can doesn't mean you necessarily should. I know. And and I had this I've had this discussion so many times with people who say that it's an e-collar and they say it only works in the vibration. And the question I always ask them next is what happens if the if he doesn't respond to the vibration, what do you do next? Okay. And if it's a if it's a pause, it means that they're turning the intensity up. Or if they tell me they're turning the intensity up, they're turning the intensity up. And it's now an, the vibration's now an or else. And you're now not working positively. You're just not you're not working using positive reinforcement. You're now working using res- negative reinforcement, which and is then, a person. And then the argument of if you know how to use it is null and void because you might have 0.0001% of people that know how to use those tools positively, yeah, but nobody else knows. No, and the thing about it is that even the people who know know how to use it, in inverted commas, they're not using them positively. If you know how to, doesn't mean that you will. So I had... Going back to my, my police career, we had, a, had two really two particularly bad inspectors when I was in the police. The second one, I mentioned the first one earlier, the second one came in, he was newly promoted and he came in and he changed all the rules, okay? Like all of them, <laughs> right? All the standard practices we'd had for years, he changed them all. But he wrote an email to everybody and sent it to everybody and told them, okay? And I turned around, I was... I had you know, a bit of service at the time and the, the young ones are coming in and were complaining about it. And I said, at least I told you. I said, so you know what the new rules are? You just need to remember them. All right. Now, the consequences for breaking the rules might be severe, but if you stay within the rules, everything's cool. Okay. You sure you it's don't work the- for the Singapore government? <laughs> I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Right, but it's not, and you're right, it starts becoming authoritarian at that point, doesn't it? Now, the problem that we've got there is... Um, how difficult it is for, so with me being fairly anti-authoritarian, don't tell me what to do, okay? Um, now, say I was a little bit more, and I'm not maverick at all, but say I was, and I now come into Singapore and I start playing hard and fast with the rules. That's a big sanction for me if I get it wrong, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So because I've learned from one model, and I'm now in, into the new model, right? now, um with, when you're working within that model of oppression, which is what it is, okay, and I'm not I'm not slanting your country or anything like that, okay. When you when you operate within an oppressive regime, okay, the Soviet regime only lasted for forty odd years, okay, 
because after 40 years, the citizens just turned around and said, we've had enough and we're not doing it anymore, okay? And they revolted in a number of ways. So what happened in Hungary was different from what happened in Berlin, which was different what happened in Romania, okay? And Albania, okay? A whole bunch of, loads of differences. But people just turn around and say, we're not doing this anymore. Our dogs don't have that option because, one, they don't live for 40 years, and two, we've always got the ability to suppress them further and oppress them further. You know, so it's when that's why when we're talking earlier on about what where we get our journey from, it's not just about dog training. It's about reading history and reading the effect that these these rule sets have on individuals. You know, so um, the reason I dare say that you're not allowed to have your dog off lead in Singapore is to look after the wildlife. Yeah, that'll be part of it. Yeah, That's a big okay. part of it. Yeah, and and right. of course look after your dog because some of the way we're yeah. here you yeah. have your dog. Yeah, dangerous. Uh-huh. yeah. So those rules are there for safety, you know. Um and a lot of the rules, most of the rules, most of them, even in um where you are, most of them will be for some sort of safety, some sort of safety. To be honest, all of them make perfect sense when you look yeah. at why they are. So like we make a bit of fun about it, but there's not one law in Singapore that I would disagree with because yeah. something has happened in Singapore previously which meant that that's a requirement. Yeah. With all of these pros and cons to the aversive, it brings us to the big topic at hand, which is the ban of shot callers in England. Now... Shot collars have already been banned in Wales for about 13 years. They've been banned in France as of January this year. England's taken 10 years to get this going. What can you tell us about the ban and what's happening in Scotland as well? Like why is that okay. not seeming to be a conversation? Right, so it's an ongoing conversation. Um, the We lobbied well for it. The government, Scottish, so if for those of you that don't know, um, we've got in the UK, so the United Kingdom is not a country, okay? The United Kingdom is a kingdom of four countries, right? Okay, um, so we've got, it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain, which is England, Wales and uh, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, okay? And Great Britain is not a country either, Great Britain's a landmass, okay? All right, so there's four countries in the United Kingdom, all right? Um, and then Ireland separate, okay, and I'm not touching that one, right? <laughs> not because there's the, right, and then there's the British Isles, which also encompasses Ireland, the island of Ireland, and the Channel Islands, okay? So United Kingdom is, we are currently under, there's um, Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, and Wales. Those, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland have devolved parliaments, which are which are responsible for some aspects of our lawmaking. This is important if you're listening to this and you don't know. Um, the Westminster government, which is um, houses a parliament, okay, that covers both English law and aspects of U- UK law, okay. So a few years ago, um, e-collars, which are I think is fall under the um, kind of purview of agriculture. Um, the Scottish government said that they were going to ban them, and that was about five years ago. And then they turned around and changed the the legislation that they're putting through and said that they now offer guidance. Now, guidance in Scots law is specific. It's not just guidelines or this is a little bit of guidance to guide you. Okay, it's got a specific meaning. Um, 
And the guidance in Scotland says that anything which causes undue harm, okay, but there's not yet been a test case in Scotland for an e-collar or a prong collar calling undue harm, and there's not likely to be, okay? So the English government, the government in Westminster uh, last week uh, announced, that, or two weeks ago, announced that there was an e they're going to be an e-collar ban from February next year in England, which brings it in line with Wales, all right? Um, I th I think and certainly hope that the Scottish government will follow, okay? But there's a number of other issues going on there. One reason why it's taken 10 years is because the government in Westminster have had their hands full with a few other things in the last few years, right? Um, that's the first thing. Um, and with Scotland trying to become, we've got a Scottish government who's a nationalist government who's trying to become independent, and they're probably trying to align themselves more with European legislation, Okay. So there's a number of things going on there, and it's not just as simple as... No, I think it's as simple as we should just be banning them, OK? But if the Scottish government are looking at bigger agricultural... Um, a bigger agricultural view and treatment of animals and animal welfare to make us more in line with what's going on in the European Union, then I think that may have influenced why they did have a U-turn on it. And now that the UK is out of the EU because of Brexit, the English government are free to do pretty much whatever they want. Okay. Right. So that, that puts some stuff there with it. Um, and that's why they're banned Welsh. The Welsh government banned them 13 years ago, as you said. So that was 2010, something like that. Um, and they're still legal in Northern Ireland, as far as I know. Um, and they're... The guidance actually says in Scotland that they are illegal, but it doesn't say they're specifically illegal because they're illegal because it causes undue harm. But you, they're going to have to be a test case to say that e-collars cause undue harm, in which case the guidance won't change, but they'll just turn around and say e-collars cause undue harm. Okay, so there'll be a legal precedent for it. So that's kind of an overview. Now, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. There's a lot more going on. Yeah. Always. Oh, it's not course. as simple as, as we think it is. I mean, yeah. all we can hope for is if we're if Scotland's looking to align more with uh, European laws, they can take a look at France, who also banned yeah, them. Absolutely. So there's yeah. always a, there's always a way for it. Now that leads yeah. me on to the next part. Not you specifically, but what can you, we, us as dog professionals, as dog training professionals, dog caregivers. What can we do to try and influence that decision? Um, so in Scotland, do you mean, or generally? Generally. Both, generally. Okay. Right, so we've got, um, if your government, regardless of where you are, I know it's slightly different in um, Singapore, is, is, it, is it democracy, Jay? <laughs> I don't know. So, what's we your do, parliament? It's a democracy. It is a democracy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Okay, right. So you've got right. So you've so if you live in a democracy, your um, your representative represents you. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we don't work for them; they work for us, right? So the first thing that you can do is you can petition your representative. So that's your member of parliament, your local councillor. Okay, your senator, your congressman, whoever that is, whatever your your setup is at home. Um, they listen to more and more voices. You make a pest of yourself, okay? So you contact them every week and ask what's going on with this, and you just keep asking them until you get the answers that you want. 
or they turn around and say, nothing is happening with this. And if they say nothing's happening with this, you go back to doing what you're doing at the start again. Okay? And you just, nothing happens. Democracy happens at a snail's pace. So you have to keep driving it. You have to, people have to be the driving force behind it. And change.org, okay, so uh, building petitions, you know, so you, you go, to, you, you build around, that's what social media is good for. Uh, one of the things it's good for is you you set up a change.org petition and you get, so I think in Scotland, sorry, I think in the UK is 50,000. I think it's 50,000 or 100,000 signatures in the UK. Um, it has to go to Parliament. Okay, that's how it's been set up. All right. Um, and depending on where you are, it might be similar. So we can always keep going and then researching it, the evidence. So your scientific papers, the, the legislative, the the bodies within our industry. So um, British College of Veterinary, um, you know, British College of Vets and all that kind of stuff, veterinary surgeons, um, all these organisations that turn around and say, and the scientific consensus is that we shouldn't be using them, that they're, they are counterproductive and unnecessary. Um, and you provide them with that information and you just keep providing them with that information. And that's the way that we change stuff. Nothing changes unless we change it. So we have to change it. Basically, if, if we're annoying enough to the government, they'll do something. Yeah, because they are now under a negative reinforcement contingency because they want us to go away. Yep, yeah, yeah. Which is actually ironic in a way. Absolutely. right. You make it painful enough for them that they have to act. So to summarise that, because I just want to make this quite clear for everybody that's listening, if you want to do something and you're living in a country which is democratic, so if you're living in like Singapore or even Hong Kong, you've got local MPs and things like that, the likes of Australia, UK, Europe, America, that's all very, very obvious and many, many more. approach your local MP let them know what your concerns are ask them what's been done about it harp on about that continuously reach out to those in your area like your your vets your behavioural consultants your veterinary behaviourists ask them what's been done push them to get involved get them to get the scientific uh, research out on the table and push that way that's how things get done that's how things change the last one, mate, because I know that you have to go. Yeah, that's okay. Is what can we do as pet owners to ensure that we are giving our pets the best treatment when it comes to training? What can people that might not know as much about training do to ensure that they're keeping their pets safe from the negatives of aversive training? I think what happens uh, when we're asking these questions is we're so used to sound bites. We're so used to like, you know, so what's a TikTok video? What is that, 30 seconds a minute? We've got this. Um, we're look, a lot of time we look for simple answers to complex problems, okay? And it needs a greater discussion. So a lot of time if I'm presenting to her in Australia a couple of months ago and somebody asked a question and it took me 15 minutes to give the backstory before I can answer the question, because I'm, I'm not assuming you've got the prerequisite knowledge if you're asking the question, or if you're asking this question, it's given me indicators that you don't have the prerequisite knowledge, which I have to fill you in on. Okay, so what can dog train, uh, what can the dog training in public do? It's educate yourself. Okay, now we then have to have skills of, of critical analysis for that. Okay, so the two main 
points are ethics and knowledge. Ethics and knowledge will get you a long way in dog training, okay? Because your ethical guidelines will keep you saying, I'm not going to hurt your dog, okay? And the knowledge of how to apply positive training. Now, we then have to have critical analysis, the skills of critical analysis, so that if somebody turns around and says to you, it's not aversive, you have to have the necessary knowledge to examine whether that's true or not. So because we've got so much free information, podcasts like this, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, okay, and TikTok has been so damaging for dogs. I mean, so unbelievable, so damaging for everybody, right? It's ridiculous, which is why it's banned in China, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Actually, so, it's not banned in China. It's controlled by China, so they control yeah, content. Yeah, exactly. The children right. that are using TikTok in China get educational and motivational videos. Yeah, uh-huh. because they're using it properly because they realise how powerful it is. Absolutely, okay? yeah. But because they want to fill America's head full of stupidity, right, they get, they allow them to put stupid videos on. I mean, okay? a lot of the social media kind of does that itself. Yeah, absolutely. But but I think TikTok is, is worse than everything else, all right? And I, I mean, by far, okay? So the we have... If you're watching something, you've got all this content, dog training content available, and no wonder people are confused because they're turning around and saying, yeah, you need to be dominant, you don't need to be dominant, you need to be the pack leader, you don't need to be the pack leader. The e-dot collars don't hurt. Yes, they do. So unless you've got the ability to go and read textbooks, <laughs> right, right, and that's where it comes from, all right, academic textbooks on behaviour, and who's going to do that, Okay. Unless you're geeky like us, all right. I was going to say idiots like us. That's who's doing yeah. it. <laughs> so it's that makes a lot of sense. It's all about education. Yeah, but the right education, because going back, and I know we've talked, we've talked a little about politics and stuff. We've still got re-education, don't we, in the world? And mm-hmm. what does that mean, right? So just because it's education doesn't mean it's good education. Well, and even then, you can have the right education, but being applied wrongly. So it is a very unpopular thing for me to say. But I've had people come to me and say, oh, I used a positive trainer and it didn't work. All right. Just because you went to a positive trainer didn't mean you went to a good positive trainer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's people that are good and bad in all of their disciplines. Yeah. And that's an important factor as well. The other thing that happens with this is just on that, Fraser, okay, when you've got companies and their companies are not organizations they're they are companies which make money mm. um either when they're assessing people see even in quotes positive training companies okay what's the lever if their business model is to get as many people through their courses as they can in order to make money then we've got a problem with the standards okay and if the level is high in knowledge they still need to make money then the ethical standards drop okay so it has to for volume okay there's a reason why there's only one uh, Lewis Hamilton okay right it's because not most of the the population in the developed world drive most of the population adult population in the world drive right or can drive but you only get a Lewis Hamilton you know once in a generation right Mm-hmm. And it's because that's there. So in order to, so the, the standard of driving isn't his, right? But the mm-hmm. standard of driving is safe for everybody else. Yeah. So you're balancing, there's 
as soon as it becomes a um, a money generating or a profit making exercise, then standards somewhere can be affected by it. A very good example of that, and I'm not going to go into it, but what I will say is for anybody that hasn't, go back and listen to our episode with Dr. Francis Cabana about nutrition for dogs. Yeah, yeah. Dog yeah food it's absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. After that episode, I genuinely changed the nutrition of my dogs, yeah. and I yeah. thought I knew quite a bit about it. Yeah. It is it's absolutely mind-boggling. So that, that's a very good example of it, and it's very good to understand that no matter what you're talking about, it's about the correct education and the correct application of that. Now, John, I know you're a little bit strapped for time, but we've got some listener questions, if that's okay, sure, very sure. briefly. Right, so I've got three that we've picked out. The first one is from Will in London. And this was quite an interesting one. And it's one that I experienced myself with Athos, but I'd, uh, I'll let you go down the rabbit hole in this one a little bit. He says, I've been using a balanced trainer who has been using a prong and shock on my dog. My dog is now more aggressive than he was before. Is there anything that I can do to help him or is the damage done? Uh, Yes. Firstly, yes, there's lots that you can do. And that's getting a good positive dog trainer that knows what they're doing. Okay. And know that that, well, yes, there there has been damage because Will has seen changes in his dog's behaviour. So the damage is already there. But what's amazing about humans and dogs, okay, is our bounce-back ability, okay? So um, we get people who have undergone severe trauma, um, real adverse circumstances, and they turn out to be good human beings that, that can go on well and get in, 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 because they embrace it. And, again, that's either that's a combination of who they are as a person, okay, which they're, you know, early back, early experiences, their genetics um, and the environment that they're operating in, so who, who they're influenced by. Um, so, yeah, your dog can come back from stuff. The human model is if we, we get soldiers who have seen real bad things, okay, or people leaving Syria and have seen really, really horrible, horrible things, are they able to go in and be productive members of society? Yeah, the answer is yes, okay. Not immediately, but... but- yeah. No, no, exactly. Take some time. Yep. And we've got our hiccups and, you know, road bumps and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yes, with the right approach and the night nurturing, and again, it comes down to ethics, knowledge, and then your ethics is then compassion, care, um, kindness, okay, fun, humour, all right, and all those nice emotions that we have, <laughs> right, you know, um, understanding you know, and all the kind of happy emotions, I'll happily call myself a happy. So. And then you've got the big one that comes at the tail end, consistency. Exactly, yeah. Yep. Yep. So for, for Will, if you're listening to this answer, Will, and you're wondering about more information, listen to the episode one about my dog, Athos, and we go down that rabbit hole because I was in a very similar situation to you. So you can see that there is... That's just one success story. There's hundreds of them, thousands yeah. of them. But it's My only the exactly the same. Yeah, yeah the they're very similar situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the next question is from Jillian in Houston. Well, I think this is the first question we've got from Texas. Well, so, I may not be maybe Houston and outside Paisley. Oh, that's true. But it does say USA <laughs> though. 
Having used an R-positive trainer with my previous dog, when I adopted my rescue, Pitbull, and had tried the same methods, it didn't work in the same way. Do I need to think about using more harsh training methods? Okay. It's not that reinforcement training, positive reinforcement training is not working. It's that the reinforcers that you're using are not, or the reinforcers that you're trying to use for your dog, or the dog doesn't find it reinforcing. Okay. So with Logan, my dog, he's a similar dog that Gillian's describing there. When I first started him, he wouldn't take food outside. He didn't take food outside because the environment was so stressful for him. Okay. So what he needed was time and space to be outside and to settle. And then we did the work inside and tried to transfer the work that we did inside, outside. And that took a little bit of time. But outside, he would work for uh, opportunity to catch the Kong. If I threw a Kong up for him to jump through the air and grab that or play tug. Okay. So it wasn't that positive reinforcement training wasn't working. It's that food wasn't his reinforcer. So it's just finding what your dog's reinforcer is. And that can be a journey. And just as we've talked about briefly, when... Jay was saying there about not straight away. It doesn't. The more damaged your dog is, the 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 more that they just they want safety and security first. Okay, so we want a safe and secure environment before we can be happy. Because if we don't have a safe and secure environment, we don't think that we'll survive long enough to be happy. So yeah. that's the model that you're working from. So that's a kind of shortish answer to that. It also Similar comes to down that. to, are you looking at just positive training or are you working with somebody that's also looking at the behaviour side of things and yeah, yeah, building up the confidence using concept games and things yeah. that are inside, as you say, and then proofing them outside, transferring them outside. Yeah. And it's not just about, can you get your dog to sit and stay in a field? Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. If you just got beaten in an alleyway, I'm going to bring you there the next day and offer you a pizza. You're not going to take it. No, no. Don't want anywhere near the alleyway. Okay. Oh, this next one. Okay, guys. This is one that I kind of mentioned something similar earlier on. This is from Siobhan in Singapore. In Singapore, they still have corporal punishment for humans. What makes you think that they would ever show compassion to animals when they're not showing the same level of compassion to humans? How can we pressure the government into moving in a positive direction? So, because this is directly about Singapore, I'm not going to... No, I can answer that one. <laughs> well, right. do you know what? Both of you give that a crack, because that'll, that'll probably be quite good. On you go, yeah. Jay. Yeah, okay. So, basically, Singaporeans are notorious for, for having a lot of complaints to each other. But you don't bring anything up unless there's a major issue that directly impacts your daily life or stuff like that. That's why, I mean, there's there's good and bad things about that, right? We we don't have many major crimes here. We don't, you don't leave the house worried that you're going to get shot, like, you know, in the US and stuff like that. This is, it's, it's a relatively safe country. But that also builds a very narrow-minded thinking of of that. You know, I'm just going to tell my friends about this. I'm just going to complain to, like, the, the coffee shop workers, people that I see on my daily routine. And as John said earlier, right, if you make enough of a nuisance to... Sorry, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, if you make enough of a nuisance to the government, they they will be put into a corner. They're going to be back into a corner. They're going to feel like, oh, you know what? We have to actually do something before this gets out of hand. Yeah. So with that there, and again, it's looking at trying to look at 
things not being absolute. So they're a really good for you, book for you to read, Siobhan, is, um, or uh, author, is um, an author called Robert Green. So if you've not heard, I reckon, I would think everybody should read Robert Green's books. I would okay. agree with that. Yeah, I think every adult on the planet should read Robert Greene's books. All right, so The Laws of Human Nature, um, 33 Strategies of War, The Art of Seduction, which is not just about seduction of a, a mate, it's about sales and, and negotiation. Um, uh, what else has he got? The Daily Laws, 43, 40, The 43 Laws of Power, 48 Laws of Power. He's, tons and t- he's got these glorious books and they're really interesting and one of the things he talks about is black and white thinking, okay? So it's this and not that, which is where we are politically with a lot of things because it's we're in a party or we're not, rather than seeing, hey, there's some centre ground there, which is actually where the vast majority of us fall into. So with, if you look at what kind of stuff will you will you get the cane for in Singapore, Jay? Uh, I'll rate your modesty. Uh, so that'd be a public indecency, so, so nudity in public? Um, that's, uh, that, that, that is one of it, yeah. Right, okay, so we'll go with that, okay? So where where's the line in that? Are you allowed to show, show your arms in a T-shirt? Yeah, for sure. Right, can you take your T-shirt off? Yeah, you just be frowned upon if you don't have a good body, so... Right, okay, right. So you can take your T-shirt off, so there's a line somewhere, isn't there? Okay, yeah. I dare say a woman probably wouldn't be able to t- get her t- T-shirt off because that's now seen as being indecent, okay? So Depends on the woman, but yeah. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> there's a line. It's not as if... So when you look, then you look at um, Afghanistan just now, okay? So women can't... They can show nothing of themselves, okay? They can't even show their eyes, all right? So that's taking it to that extreme, okay? That's black and white thinking, okay? So when you've got that there... Um, there'll be some things that you'll get uh, corporal punishment will be the sanction for in Singapore and some things that they're not, okay? Which means that there's some flexibility in their thinking. And you just want to start working into that flexibility to say, well, and this is just how we progress. We just say we don't want that to be punished anymore. We want it to go to become slightly more liberal. So I don't think, and I know that the likelihood is that Siobhan has not been defeatist it can be because it can be frustrating. You're like, well, I'm using that, maybe using that as an excuse not to do anything about it. But you look at the kindnesses that are already shown. So if your dogs are kept on the lead for safety reasons, to look after the safety of the dog, the safety of the person, and the safety of the wildlife, there's a welfare motivation there. And you now just say, well, you're motivated in this aspect of animal welfare. So can we be more, can we be, can we change your legislation in order to deal with more animal welfare under a different guys and it's just about your ability to um, debate and change minds the other thing that I would add on just at the end there is that the governing body that decide the punishment and rehabilitation for criminals are not the same governing body that make the decisions on animal Animal welfare welfare. training so you can't really think oh just because they do this over here they're not they're going to do the exact same over there it's it's almost as if it's a completely different yeah. set of people that are making those decisions that's then that you're black and white thinking there yeah starting to think you know more to add, on, to add on to that as well like for singaporeans especially over here if you're complaining to 10 people about oh uh, i just read a case about um animal being abused in singapore blah 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 that 10 people 
will most likely be your supporters if you actually brought it up to you know your MP and stuff like that as yeah. well. Yeah, so generate ten. They generate ten. It's 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 a good pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Guys, as much as I would love to keep this going all night, I know that we've been pushing the boat out for time. Yeah. Uh, John, thank you very much for being on the oh, podcast. Nice it's been absolutely fantastic chatting with you. Before you go, could you tell people how to find you and how to follow you? Because I know that you've got some good content that you put out as well. And I think that'd be good for people to see. Perfect. Thank you. So you've got, um, you can get me on Facebook as Gla- under Glasgow Dog Trainer uh, and Behaviour Consultant. So on Facebook, it's at Glasgow Dog Trainer. Same on Instagram. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's the same on YouTube. But if you search Glasgow Dog Trainer on YouTube, you'll find me. Um, my website is glasgowdogtrainer.co.uk and all my links are there anyway. And I've also got a monthly membership program, which is £15 a month. Um, so if you like my free content, I go into significantly more detail on the paid content, and it's £15 a month. We'll put it in the session notes as well. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, we'll have all that in there. And if you want, you can even put a, a code so that they can identify that they got your contact yeah. through the podcast. Sure. So we'll put all of that in there. And again... It's been a pleasure having you on, John, yeah. and uh, hope to so get you much. back on at some point in the future where we can pick a different topic and go down that yeah. rabbit hole. Look forward to it. The next time I'm bringing whiskey, because I'm not going to sit here with two Scotsmen and not have alcohol. <laughs> just I make just sure hope people can understand what we've said. <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs>